May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Be seated. It's good to be back in a pulpit. Feels pretty good. Um, yeah. Uh, I, this week, as I was looking through this, um, these lessons, uh, I have stuck on this, um, this lesson in Romans chapter 13. And, and I thought maybe, um, since we all have Bibles, perhaps, um, we could grab one. And um, I think your Bibles are a page the same as mine, which would be 1,062. Um, if it's not, somebody look. Uh, one, uh, Romans 13. Is it 1,062? Is that the page? What's that? Okay, so we're on the, we do have different versions then. I thought we, had, we were page the same. Actually, I did think that. So, um, what is it, 1167? 1127. Chapter 13, Romans 13, verse 8. A little background about the... Uh, what is it? 987, I think is a... This is like bingo. We're going to pick a number here, and one of them's going to stick. <laughs> 987 we're right here. Do I have a third option? Anybody? Yeah. Are we really 948? Oh, you have this. Romans 13. If you can't find it, try the index at the front and um, work your way to the back. All right. I thought... Uh, from out here, and they'll listen to these people up here. They probably have, they have a, a older ones, yeah. Okay, uh, this is a kink we have to work out. Okay, uh, a, a little bit about Romans, the letter. St. Paul writes the letter to the Romans. It's the longest letter he writes to, that we have in existence. Perhaps he wrote longer letters, um, maybe to his wife, but uh, we don't have those. The ones that we have that have survived in the Bible, this is Paul's longest letter. He wrote more letters to the Corinthians kind of a messed up church, the Corinthians. Um, we have two of them. We know that there was one more that we don't have um, that's uh, floating out there somewhere or buried in the sands. Uh, but we have two of them. So the Corinthians get more material. The lo- Romans get the longest letter, uh, 16 chapters. And what Paul does in this letter, he is so, is so different from what he typically does. Um, in a lot of his letters, for instance, to the Corinthians or to the Galatians, he like jumps right in and says, you know, there are these problems going on in Corinth, in, in, in Galatia, um, and I want to deal with these. Uh, in Galatians, he hardly says hello before he says, oh, how foolish you are, you know. Uh, in, in the Corinthians, he says, oh, I hear there's this and this and this going on, but not with Romans. With Romans, he takes his time. We know that there are serious problems in the church. The problems come about because the church is made up of Jews and Gentiles. Maybe surprising to you, but the first century, the church was mostly Jewish. And so you have a mostly Jewish church that is beginning to include Gentiles. And they have this uh, racial, uh, ethnic separation that is pretty common among people groups, no matter where you are or what time period you live in. And that's a problem. But there's sort of a social, ethical problem that goes on. Because perhaps you know that uh, Orthodox Jews, who became Christians maintain their their orthodox ways, which meant that they didn't eat pork, you know, they didn't eat shellfish, they, um, they circumcised their infant boys, they did things like baptize their hands before they ate, not to wash off dirt, but to ritually uh, cleanse themselves. Um, they would not eat any food 
that had come from a pagan temple. This was a very popular thing in the ancient world to sacrifice an animal to, say, Zeus or, or Diana or Artemis, or, you know, one of the gods. And they would sacrifice an animal and then have a, a part of it was thrown in a fire to be consumed by the gods. Um, and the rest of the animal was then slaughtered and taken to market where you could buy the best cuts of meat at the cheapest prices. Um, I was saying last night how excited I get when I go into Acme and I see that they have steaks like on sale. Like, oh my goodness, you know, and I come home with like 40 of them. Abby says like, you know, there's only a few of us here now. Um, but look, they were on sale, you know. Uh, this was going on in ancient Rome. You have Gentiles who go to the market and buy meats that were sacrificed to God because uh, to the gods and they were eating them because they had always done this. And even though they're now Christians, they're saying, oh, but it doesn't really matter. I, I don't worship those gods. I'm just, I'm just eating the cheap leftovers from their sacrifices. And the Orthodox Jews were saying, that's insane. You can't possibly do that. We find all this out in chapters 14 and 15 of the letter. Secondhand kind of information. They knew what was going on. We don't until we get deep into this letter, almost to the very end before we realize the real problem. But it's a church that's in disruption. It's um, people won't eat with one another. They won't talk to one another. They're unkind to one another within the Christian community, which is a very small community in a very powerful pagan city. So what Paul does is he begins kind of slowly. It's like when I go swimming, you know, I stick a toe in. And then another toe in. I don't know. Like some of you, you think, my wife should just run out into the water and dump, jump in. I don't know how you do that. That's insane, right? I kind of just ease my way in, little by little. Paul eases his way into this letter. He, he tells them of all these great things that God has done for us. The whole plan of salvation, beginning with creation and Abraham and what Christ has done for us. And, and, and in chapters 9, 10, 11, about how Israel is going to be included in this plan. It's a marvelous, theological, uh, theologically rich letter. But then he gets to chapter 12, and he starts to turn the corner. Because of all these great things, therefore, do not be conformed to this world. Don't be squeezed into the, this world's mold, he says. But be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Begin to think differently. Don't think like this pagan world. Start to think differently like Christians. And, and, and make yourselves a living sacrifice. Give yourselves to God so that you can understand what is good and holy and right. That's chapter 12. Chapter 13, he starts getting into the nitty-gritty. Chapter 13, the first few verses, pay your taxes. <laughs> you know, um, this isn't in the, in the, in the, um, the text this morning, but if you looked at verse 7 of chapter 13, there in that little break, pay all what is owed to them, to the people, the taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Um, I'm a Rotarian here in Hudson, and so I run into the mayors all the time. Um, one of my favorite things is to see the mayor and say, how you doing today, Your Honor? You know, this is his, his official title. And it's a small town, and I know that, you know, it's David, and the last one was Bill. But, but to call them Your Honor, you know, I was, I was in Kepner's the other night doing some evangelism work, and um, I, I, uh, I, I saw, I saw uh, former Mayor Curran in there and walked up, hey, Your Honor, how are you doing? And uh, had a little chat with him. 
giving honor to whom honor is due. Paying your taxes. This, Paul says, do this. Pay your taxes. But then look how he transitions into the next verse, verse 8, the beginning of our lesson. Owe no one anything. Don't be delinquent. Don't fail to pay. But this is sort of a pun, except to love each other. The one debt you can't get out of. The one debt that you're stuck still owing. You have to pay this. You're in debt already to love one another. Why are you in debt? Why am I in debt? Because all that Christ has done for us. Because all that God has done to save us, to save this whole creation, because of that we have a debt to pay. And what is that debt? To love one another. Love one another. Now I think Paul means, first of all, one another inside the church. But also he goes on, love your neighbor. Um, Jesus told this little story. Perhaps you've heard it. <laughs> this fellow is walking from Jerusalem to Jericho, falls in the hands of robbers. A priest comes along, too busy. A Levite comes along, too scared. A Samaritan comes along, and he helps him. Jesus asks at the end of the story to the fellow who asked, who is my neighbor? He says, which one was a neighbor to the fellow? The one who helped him. The one who showed compassion. Helping one another, loving one another it, within the church ought to be easy. Sometimes it's not. Loving one another in the world is required. But one of the things I think we mess up is this word love. I think it's difficult for us to get our heads around love in, in the English world, English-speaking world because we use the same word all the time. For instance, I love my wife. I love my children. I love my mother. And she says, you should call more if you really do. Um, I love, uh, you know, I, I love my cousins and family. I love my friends, my church. You have all of these loves as well, don't you? But they're not all the same. In, in Greek language, uh, the language that Paul spoke and wrote in, there are many words for love. Eros, this um, romantic love. Philos, this brotherly kinship love. An agape, a different kind of love, an unconditional love. For God so loved the world, St. John says, right? Agape. Paul says right here, you shall agape, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Unconditional. Without any sense of reciprocity. Oh, I love them when they love me back. Where's that? No, you shall love your neighbor. You owe it to them. You owe it to them to love one another. Uh, when um, you're, you're not going to believe this, uh, I was a. Um, trust me, you're not going to believe this. When I was when I was a, a coach for my son Benjamin's baseball team when he was about 11 or 12, we were in this league that had this one team who had a coach who was a real pain. Um, he was an unsavory character. He would cheat kids, you know, all the time. Uh, he would try to bend rules to his team's favor. He wanted to win more than he wanted to be a decent person, you know. And I didn't like it. Um, you'll believe that part. What you won't believe is the one time we were playing him, their, their team. Our team was playing their team. And there was a call to play that was, uh, uh, you know, whatever, went our way. And he came out, and he's this other coach, and he's given the umpire a hard time about this. So I went out 
to interject a little bit of reason and sensibility into this conversation. You know how you do. And, um, and I had a clipboard in my hand. Let me just tell you, if you check with Dietrich later or some other, uh, Abby, um, this story is different from their version. Uh, in my version, um, I walk out to the plate and, um, and I've got the clipboard in my hand and then a little bit of, you know, disagreement ensues and to the point where I took the clipboard and I threw it down on home plate and um, perhaps said, you know, something about, I don't know, you know, going to school or something. You know, um, I didn't swear, I wasn't, I, I, but it was a, it was a heated moment. Uh, I was sort of embarrassed. Um, I picked up the, the clipboard. We went our separate ways. Uh, my good friend Eric Clark was the commissioner of the entire league, and he lived right down the street from me. And I knew that I was going to have to see him um, very soon, and uh, we would have some conversation. And we were good friends, and and uh, and I did. I bumped into Eric a, a couple of days later, and I, you know, I guess you probably heard about the clipboard and the home plate sort of thing. And you know what Eric says to me? He says, "Joe was really hot out that day, wasn't it?" Like. You know, it was really hot out there. Yeah, I, I think we all have bad days when it gets really hot outside. Probably hungry, didn't have enough to eat. Yeah, you know what, you're right. I was pretty hungry, didn't have enough to eat. He could have hammered me. He could have, he could have humiliated me. He could have pointed out the error of my ways. But he didn't. He let me off the hook. Uh, just about two months later, Eric was in a tragic accident. He passed away um, in a boating accident. The last thing I remember really about him is that, that he was kind to me when he could have not been. He could have scolded me, made me feel bad about myself, but instead he encouraged me. Love one another, love your neighbor just like in the same way you would love yourself. How would I treat myself? What kind of sticky situation have you been in? And you said, oh my goodness, I really messed this one up. How would you like people to treat you? Guess what? That's the way you get to treat others. But Paul doesn't stop there. Look on. He, he, he changes a little bit. Not only should we love one another, but we should let our light shine. Verse 11, besides this, you know what time it is. The hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is gone, the day is at hand. He's speaking metaphorically, of course, right? It's not about literal night and day. It's about a different era, a different time in our lives. What are we to do? Let us walk, verse 13, let us walk properly. This is an adverb. Let us walk circumspectly. Let us walk as we ought to. Um, we ought to live in ways that are, um, that are, identify us as Christians. And so here's the via negativa. What you don't do, you, you don't get involved in the things that pagans do, orgies and drunkenness, sexual immorality, sensuality, quarreling and jealousy. We put those things off. That ought not to be who we are. They don't identify us. In fact, Paul two times uh, says to put off. Verse 12, um, let us cast off. Uh, again, um, where else is it? Uh, a second time, um, 12 and, uh, oh, Oh, two times put on. Uh, verse 14, 13 and 14. Let us walk properly in the day, not in the, uh, blah, 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 blah. But put on, verse 14, the Lord Jesus Christ. He also says, put on the armor of God or the weapons of God. Put off all that nonsense. Fighting among yourselves. 
being jealous of one another, striving to get to take from people. The whole issue, um, especially with, with the sexual immorality, is that it was abusive of people, and it still is. That it uses people as objects and things, not as human beings. Get rid of that stuff and put on Christ. Put on this new life. If we put on Christ, then we would look like Christ in the world. And imagine what Christ looks like in the world. Well, you don't really have to imagine. Read the Gospels and see what he looks like in the world. One who shows what it looks like to love neighbor as self. One who cares about those who are hurting. One who enters into the life of people who are in pain. And make no provision, no forethought for the flesh. The other night, um, Abby and I and a friend went down to, uh, to Canton to watch um, Hudson play McKinley. Um, and it was sort of a bloodbath. Uh, and we left. Turns out to be not so bad. But uh, anyway, we, we were leaving a little bit early. And, and I heard um, over the intercom um, uh, the announcer say that, I think it was this coming week, or it might have been a game that was already going on, that the city of Orange was playing the city of Green. So the orange, the orange lions are playing the green bulldogs. Um, this has always been a sort of thing with me. You know, the orange lions up in orange, um, their color scheme is black and orange. And the green bulldogs' color scheme is black and... Exactly! Why is that? They should be black and green, don't you think? If you are from the city of green, I think you have a moral obligation to have green in your color scheme. I used to go down there with the boys and we would, you know, they run track or something. And I'm like, why is this team orange? They should be green. It's bothered me for years. And then I thought about the football field with these two teams that have the exact same color scheme. And so who's green and who's orange? Well, literally, who's green and orange, right? Christians, you have a moral obligation to look like Jesus. You are duty-bound. I am duty-bound to look like Jesus in this world. I owe it. I owe it to him and I owe it to you. And you owe it to him and you owe it to one another. Not just to love the people that are easy to love, but to love all people. What, what does it look like when we look like Christ in the world? And more importantly, how bad is it when we don't? We have an obligation. Paul reminds us of that. And there's no easy way out of it. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.